we're coming up on the 4th of July, and we're talking about freedom today. Uh, something that is at the, the heart of the Christian faith, I think would, what would be probably a hallmark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be one who experiences and uh, lives in a certain type of freedom. And so we're going to dive into that here in this passage in Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Galatia, specifically uh, to address a, a particular error. This is one of the more severe letters in the New Testament. It's almost all correction. The apostle is writing back to this church that is now flirting with the idea of adopting their uh, Jewish forebears customs specifically for the men to practice circumcision and then go back under the authority and the threshold of the old covenant of of the law. And so Paul has sent this letter to this church to remind them of who Jesus is and what he has done, of the hope of the gospel, and specifically to remind them of the fact that we're meant to be a people who are free. Who are, who are liberated. In a day and an age where freedom comes under much scrutiny, where there's lots of debate about it, I'm sure you'll be able to turn on your television set in the next two days and hear people talking about which particular freedoms they're afraid we're about to lose. Uh, we need to know as believers what it means to be truly free. And I think here in Galatians 5, we find one of the best and perhaps most succinct definitions of freedom. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then down in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But... If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, when I was uh, a senior in high school, I'd been a Christian for maybe four months, maybe five months. Uh, I was on a, a, a bus ride to, a, to attract me, and I found myself like on the fourth or fifth row, and the two guys sitting in front of me in the seat in front of me on the bus uh, we're engaged in a debate, and I was just sitting in my seat by myself, minding my own business. And the debate they were having was whether or not it was good or bad or right or wrong to get tattoos. And they invited me into this debate because they knew I'd recently, I think, come to faith. And they were like, hey, man, you kind of do the church thing. What, 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 does the, what does the Bible say about tattoos? Now, I'd been reading the Bible for maybe three months. I hadn't even ventured over to the left side. I didn't know what was in the Old Testament I was somewhat familiar maybe with the Gospels, and that, that was about it. My, my youth pastor, where I'd come to faith, my pastor had given me a, a devotional, and it was almost all in the, the Gospel of John. So that was my wheelhouse at that moment. And so he said, what does the Bible say about tattoos? And I was like, I, I don't think anything. And he's like, are you sure about that? And I was like, I, I, I think they're okay. I mean, I don't, I, at the time, I had longer-ish hair. I had multiple earrings. I was like, hey, man, I got in. I got they baptized me, and I didn't have to do anything about this, you know. Like, And then a kid about two rows back who was in a very different sort of church and group than I was in shouted out, no, the Bible says it's a sin to have tattoos. And so I spin around, and I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, the Bible says it's a sin to have tattoos. And I was like, where? And he said, in Leviticus. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> he's like, yeah, in the, in the Old Testament, it says that. It's a sin to have tattoos. Now, I had, again, been a Christian for a few months. I was sort of fired up for the things of God. So I had my backpack with me, and I carried my Bible everywhere. And I was like, 
We're going to find out what this Leviticus says. And so I, I go over to Leviticus. I can't find it. So I go back to the, 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 the index in the back, and I look up tattoos, and sure enough, Leviticus 19, and I flip back over, and I start reading Leviticus 19, and I'm having an existential crisis on my way to attract me. I'm like, not only is tattoos there, I, you can't wear shirts with two types of you know, fabric in them. Like I'm pretty sure my tracksuit's got polyester in it. Is the Lord angry at me for what I have on you. I mean, there were all sorts of rules. You can't eat a Nighthawk. I didn't even know a Nighthawk was a thing. Like there were just all. And so I immediately, I like, I'm kind of frantic. I'm like, I don't know. I'm, it said something about piercings. I'm like, why did they baptize me? And I still got these, you know? So the next Sunday I go to my church and I see my pastor, the one who baptized me. And I was like, Hey man, uh, I read some pretty concerning things in the Bible. Can you help me with Leviticus? And he started, he started laughing. He was like, yeah, yeah, set up a time and come by. And so he, I come into his office, and I was like, okay, I got all these rules that I'd never heard of before. What do I do with all this? And he takes me here to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 1. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. And started explaining to me what that means, what it means with the Old Testament, what it means with, with life, what it means to know and to experience the favor of God, and his love and his grace and his mercy and the hope of the gospel the fact that I'll one day be fully redeemed and restored. So that's what I want to do this morning as we start turning our cultural and national attention to the idea of freedom over the next couple of days. Let's explore this from a theological perspective. I love political freedom. I love national freedom. I, know, I love the fact that I'll see fireworks in the next couple of days and I'll eat a hot dog in the name of Jesus and enjoy that, you know. But there is a sense or a, a way of viewing freedom only strictly through that lens that I believe, and I can argue it this morning from our passage, ultimately still leaves one enslaved. Because the issue of the heart and the issue of, of our spiritual slavery is really where the heart, heartbeat of freedom needs to begin. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here this morning. I want to show you just really two things this morning. The first thing I want to do is I want to define freedom. I want to define freedom really in the two ways that I think Paul does. Freedom from certain things and freedom to certain things. The, the true Christian freedom, as we define it, is we have freedom from some particular things. We've been released. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back from captivity in very specific ways. But that freedom has an orientation or, or a direction about it. We have freedom to do certain things as well. Because we've been liberated, we can now live in these particular ways. And then I want to encourage you as we close out in just a minute to talk and to think about not only do we have freedom from these things and to these things as we define it, but, but we have, we have the, the responsibility to pursue freedom, to, to run towards it, to stand in it, to enjoy it. And to be on guard lest we lose it, because the potential exists, at least according to the entire letter of the book of Galatians, that we could give up our freedom. So I'm going to define it and then call you to pursue it this morning. That's what we're going to do. Let's jump in and do it real quick. First off, when we start defining freedom, we need to realize we have freedom from certain things. That's what Paul says there in verse 1. It is for freedom that freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back into bondage. Don't go back into captivity. Don't submit yourself, lay down your life back into a life that is enslaved. 
So instead, you, you have freedom from certain things. He says, you've been for freedom, Christ has set you free. So you're released from those certain things. Now, if we had time this morning, we would cover verses 2 through 12, which you may have noticed I kind of brushed over. That's because it's all about circumcision. And given the fact that kids' ministry is not operating and we're in here today, it's like families, I decided to let that one just kind of lay pat in your Bibles. If you want to go there amongst your families, have fun with that one. But I'll brush over it quickly. Essentially, what the Apostle Paul is telling the, the, the church in Galatia is that if they go back into practicing circumcision as a way of being just and right before God, they are then obligated to keep the entirety of the law. And he goes on to say in those verses that that's a problem. In fact, you can go back in other places in the Bible, places like Acts chapter 15, places like the book of Hebrews that we just spent over a year studying, and see where if you sign up for one part of the law, you're taking on the entire law. So what he's trying to teach the church here is that you have freedom from a life of performative religion. A life of performative religion. What what does that mean? A life of religiosity where when you come under the law, you are now obligated via circumcision to, to go through all of the customs, the rules, the dietary restrictions, all of the social expectations that the law required of you. If you want to see what that looks like sometime, if you want to speculate as to what it could look like to live a life of performative religion, go read the Gospels and see all the ways that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were coming down on Jesus for not living up to their interpretations and their expectations. All the ways that they cornered Jesus and said things like, why do your disciples not wash their hands in the customary way before they eat? Why do your disciples not observe the Sabbath the way that we're required to observe the Sabbath? Why, why do you heal on the Sabbath day, Jesus? They're, they're enlisting him or seeking, seeking to beckon him to live a life of their particular performative religion. And in that form of religion, you are under constant evaluation. You were always scrutinized by the expectations of those who say that they subscribe to those things. Paul says whenever you do that, it's like taking a yoke, the, the object that would be placed upon the head of an ox or, or a bull to, to plow something. You're taking that yoke on, and it is a form of slavery. You can never get out from underneath it. You can never escape it. So why would you go back to it, Paul says? Why would you enlist yourself to a life of performative religion? Now, Some of you hear that, though, this morning, and you say, I thought that's what this was. I thought that's what all religion was, was just living up to prescriptions and and, and rules and obligations, uh, the do's and the don'ts that the Bible tells us. And if, if that's you this morning, if you thought that's what this was that we're signing up for, I have really good news for you today. Maybe today, and I know that it's possible because it was possible in my life at one point, maybe today is the day that you hear. You're actually free from that. We'll plunge even deeper into it in a moment. But if you've thought that Christianity was just a new way of doing do's and don'ts, yeah, we've sort of updated. We got 2.0 of religion. The Old Testament talked about you know, dietary restrictions and two different kinds of cotton and stuff like that in your clothing. But we have different rules. But they're the same thing in the sense that we're obligated in the same exact way. Unless we live up to this obligation, God will not accept us. Now, Paul is a very fierce opponent of this idea. In fact, again, if we had time this morning, we would go to places like 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul says, look, I'm not held to an account by an external law. I'm not held to an account by the law of the land. I don't even judge myself. That's how good the good news of the gospel is. You can be free from even judging yourself. In fact, that's the second thing that we see we have freedom from. We have freedom from the tyranny of the law. The tyranny of the law. 
It's not just that we're free from these uh, moral obligations in the sense of live this way so that God will accept you, the way that the law was a yoke of slavery to Israel. We're also free from the law within, the law that is on our own hearts. You see, this morning, if you hear me talking about this, about how religion has this performance about it, it has this, these expectations and obligations built into it, and then you hear me talk about the tyranny of the law, and you say, you know what? I've got a solution to this problem. I'll just avoid religion altogether. The way that you live the freest, you would say, perhaps, is to avoid all of this stuff. And I'll just live however I want to live, because that, after all, may be freedom, right? Au contraire. In fact, Paul uses a really interesting word there in verse 1 that challenges that idea. Go back and look at verse 1 again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit, and here's the word, again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the Galatians, prior to the gospel coming to them, uh, was not a, a land that was made up mostly of Jews who were following the customs of the law. The Galatians were pagans. They were most likely quite idolatrous pagans. They, they had their own worship systems, worshiping false gods or, 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 or idols that they had established. And so when Paul says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, he's not talking about people going back to the law of the Old Testament because they weren't following the law of the Old Testament. They were doing pagan idolatry. That word again is really informative. What Paul's saying is, look, if you don't turn to Christ and turn to the freedom and the hope of the gospel, you're going to be enslaved. Whether you're enslaved to the Old Testament and its laws and obligations, or you're even enslaved to your own way of thinking what right and wrong is. It's different variations of slavery. It's different variations of what you're enlisting to. In Tim Keller's commentary on this, he writes, he said, The Galatians were in danger of going under the yoke of the law. But the startling word in this last sentence is the word again. The Galatian Christians had been pagans who were under the slavery of literal idolatry, the basic principles of the world, as chapter 4 tells us. But here Paul once more makes his radical claim that pagan idolatry and biblical moralism, that is, keeping the laws of the Bible, are basically the same thing. The Christians, the, the, the Galatians had been amoral liberals, and now they were about to become very moral conservatives. Paul is, Paul is saying that these boil down to the same spiritual slavery. Under circumcision, the Galatians will experience once again the anxiety and the guilt and the burden life that they knew before as pagans. They will never be sure that they are being good enough. Their lives will be as fear-based and proud and guilt-ridden as they were before. In fact, probably more so. They will fall into the touchiness, insecurity, pride, discouragement, and weariness of people who were never sure that they have worth. Paul says, look, the, the problem here is not just that the law is for people who subscribe to the Old Testament. The problem is that the law is written on your heart. And there's no way of escaping that. You can run to any sort of cul-de-sac in the political sphere or philosophical or religious sphere. And what you're going to find there is that everyone has a specific list of rights and wrongs, of do's and don'ts, people who measure up and people who do not. And when you get in that cul-de-sac, you'll very quickly see that not only are the bad people out there doing the bad things, whatever that list is, but even the people who claim to be good, even the people who claim to be living up to their own expectations know that they're not even at their best. So at their best, they're, they're disillusioned, prideful people who shame the world and puff themselves up. But then when they trip over their own values and morals, they despair. Whichever one of those you run to, Paul says, is slavery. 
And so then the hope is not to get away from religion altogether. The hope is not to try to live according to your own will or to your, to your own standards. The hope is that you can be liberated from the law that is within, the law that cries out for your own condemnation. You see, the good news of the gospel is that you're even able uh, to, to, to silence that to the extent that you trust in the hope of Jesus alone. You're no longer held captive to the endless amount of should-haves that you heap upon yourself, the endless amounts of regrets that you accumulate because you never lived up to your own standards, the endless amount of, of shame that has just been stockpiled in your life and in your history because you could never live up to it. Whether it's a religious law or an a-religious law, whether it's moralism or progressivism, you were never living up. You're never batting a thousand. So Paul says there's a freedom on offer here from Jesus that escapes that entire plan, that entire regimen. There's a freedom that we get to enjoy, he says. When we talk about this at Living Hope, we do this in our membership class. We talk about it's the reason why we call ourselves a gospel-centered church. It's because fundamentally I do not believe that we can just give you a new and updated list of shoulds and should nots, of do's and don'ts, and turn you into good people. Because the gospel fundamentally is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people come alive. Those are different things. It's not merely a moral prescription that says, if we check all of these boxes, we'll be self-assured and we'll know that we're the good ones. And all of those people out there who just don't get it, they're the bad ones. And it's the fundamental difference, we talk about this in our membership class, between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I obey Therefore, I'm accepted. And that obedience may be to stuff that you find in the Bible. It may be to something in another religion. It may be I obey my own, my own will, my own pattern of life. Therefore, I know I'm accepted. But the gospel says I'm accepted. Therefore, I can obey. It flips the whole thing on its head. Religion says that your motivation is always going to be based on fear and insecurity. I am prompted to do these things because I'm insecure of whether or not I belong to the community or I'm insecure whether or not I belong even with myself. I'm uncomfortable with my own skin. And so fear prompts you to do what is, quote, unquote, the right thing. The gospel, on the other hand, you're motivated by, by joy and by gratitude. I can't believe I get to do this. I cannot believe that God would look upon me with favor, grace, and love and mercy such that he would then issue me a life that looks like this, marked by, by the love of Christ itself. Fundamentally different things. In religion, my view, my self-view often swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my own standards, I feel confident, then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble, but I'm not confident because I feel like a failure. The gospel, on the other hand, is not based on your moral achievement. In Christ, I'm simultaneously sinful and lost, yet also accepted. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me, and I'm so loved that he was glad to do it. It's the only way you hold together humble confidence. The only way. Religious people can end up proud or despairing, but they can't be humble. And they can't be confident at the same time. That's what Paul is telling us. We have freedom from that particular way of viewing the world and viewing religion. One more thing. We have freedom from, from the enslavement of our own desires. Following Jesus, trusting in him alone for salvation. We have freedom from the enslavement of our own desires. We are not defined by what we desire anymore. Whatever, whether that desire is a, is a power desire, whether the desire is a sexual desire, whether the desire is a particular appetite in our lives, 
We are no longer defined by that thing. We are freed from that. Where do I get that? Look back at verse 13. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Catch that. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to self-indulgence. Meaning, you now have a choice. You no longer have to be defined by what your flesh wants what it desires. You no longer have to try to baptize those desires, either in religious language or progressive language. You now get to say, you know what? I get to choose not to try to always satisfy my flesh. Prior to coming to faith in Jesus, you don't have the choice. Whatever the heart wants, the heart wants, and the heart and all of its depravity and wickedness will want some really corrupted things. And so you're enslaved to your desires. But because of faith, Paul says, look, because you've been set free, you don't have to indulge the flesh anymore. You've been let loose from that. You're no longer tied to that. Your desires no longer define you. And John Stott's fantastic commentary on Galatians, he says, Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. It is an unrestricted liberty of approach to God as his children and not an unrestricted liberty to wallow in our own selfishness. Christian freedom is very different. Far from having liberty to indulge the flesh, Christians are said to have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is to say, we have totally repudiated the claim of our lower nature to rule over us. So think about all that we have freedom from this morning. This is true Christian freedom. You have freedom from the expectations of a religious community, be they progressive or conservative, to live up to their standards. You don't have to do that anymore. You are not held captive to public opinion about whether or not you're performing or jumping through the right hoops or checking the right boxes. You even have freedom from the, own, uh, 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 the, the law in your heart, the, the, the thing within that cries out for your condemnation, the thing that says you're not killing it. You're not at the top of your game. You should be better. You have freedom from that. Not only that, you have freedom from your own debased desires, from all the compulsions and the anxieties and the, 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 the trappings that the flesh craves and longs for that comes to define us over enough time. That's all that we have freedom from. And as a believer in Jesus, I, I think that this morning, if you're anything like me, and I assume maybe you are to an extent, that there's some measure of some battle going on on one of those fronts, even with you right now. You're, you're held captive by the opinions of others, and you don't feel like you fit in, you don't belong, which prompts an insecurity and a fear that leads you to then always try to live up to the expectations of others. And that is slavery. Or you have this compulsion and desire with, within, but your heart cries out against it, and so you find yourself trapped by either, like Paul says in Romans 7, the desire to do what you don't want to do or the inability to do the thing that you know you need to do. And the good news against the backdrop of that dilemma, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can be freed from that. And then you get to experience freedom too. It's not just freedom from, it's freedom too. That's at the second half there of verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in verse 1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Which means that, here's what I want you to do with your freedom. Enjoy it. We've been kind of touching on this nerve a little bit over the past couple of weeks. That one of the things that often gets kind of tossed aside in the faith is that we hold up things like the virtue of sacrifice and the virtue of self-denial and the virtue of, you know, living our lives for others and taking up our cross. And those are all 
high-level virtues, Christ-like actions. But often when we do that, we exclude ourselves from finding any sense of joy in the freedoms that we've been given. And Paul says, it's for freedom that you've been set free. In other words, one of the defining features or hallmarks of the Christian faith is that we are a liberated people who get to enjoy that liberation. In telling that story early on in this very letter, Paul tells the church in Galatia that at one point in time, there were some guys that were hanging out with Gentiles. and They were enjoying Gentile things, and some of the Jewish brothers came upon them, and Peter pushed away from the table because he didn't want to be thought to be like those people. So he couldn't enjoy his freedom because someone come to snuff out his freedom. And, and, and Paul says, I had to confront Peter to his face and say, yeah, you believe the gospel with your, with your heart and with your mind. You profess it with your lips, but you're not keeping in step with it in your actions. What does that mean to enjoy your freedom? Well, usually whenever we have kiddos in the room, I like to give some sort of takeaway that says, okay, I want you to really think about what it means to be a Christian. Do something like this. Eat ice cream. Y'all remembered that one. Last time I said, you know what, have a ribeye, because we saw it there in the scriptures. Go eat the meat that's given to you by God. Everyone was like, yay, go pastor, tell me more of that. Enjoy your freedom. You're probably going to get a day off here in the next couple of days. Don't shame yourself if you're floating in a pool. Watch the fireworks, eat the hot dog, praise God for it. Yeah, it probably took a year or two off your life, but you get to meet Jesus sooner. (laughs) Who knows what's in it? But, but that's the gift that we've been given. We can enjoy it. We can enjoy our political freedom. We can enjoy the freedom that we have as a country that was bought with a price as well. But we're free to enjoy those things. So much of the life of faith is beginning to learn the difference between can and should. You can do lots of things. Should you? I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't have the hot dog. Look, if your physician's told you not to do that, don't do it. You can, but you shouldn't. And one of my children, who shall remain nameless, asked me about getting a tattoo on their 18th birthday. You can. I don't know if you should. Why? Because if I would have put something on my body at 18, I would really, really hate that thing right now. Because I was an idiot when I was 18. And anything I would be walking around with, like some lyrics to a Hank Williams Jr. song, how do you make that into something else? You put a rose on top? I don't know. Like I'm stuck with it for the rest of my life. You can. I don't know if you should. And so much of enjoying freedom is learning to walk in wisdom, learning that you don't have to go by these objective standards forced down upon you, but also there's some wisdom in whether or not you navigate this world with an eye towards who you're becoming in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be sanctified? And Paul says that's really kind of where this freedom leads. Not only do we have the freedom to enjoy freedom, we have the freedom to love others. He says, don't indulge the flesh, but love others. And here's the good news of the gospel. Because I have been set free from the expectation of others, I'm not prompted to try to love you so that you'll like me, so that I'll belong or fit in. Because I'm set free from the tyranny of the law, which says that because of my insecurity and my fears, I have to love in a particular way, because that no longer holds captive over me. And because I'm set free from the selfishness of my own flesh, I can actually genuinely love another human now. Only whenever you've been set free from those things can love be genuine and sincere. Otherwise, it's some measure of performance that you're doing something to get something in return. It's transactional. But true Christ-like love comes with no strings attached because Jesus has cut all the strings. If I'm loving you for you because God loves you, not because it scores me religious points in some divine system, then it's true, actual, sincere love. Altruism can only really exist inside this framework. Anything else is all a transaction. 
Not only that, only in this, Paul says, can true service exist. Through love, serve one another. For the whole of the law is fulfilled in this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says the freedom we have to turn from the flesh is to turn towards one another. We can serve one another because we're no longer enslaved by our flesh. Now I have this free space in my life that's not occupied by thinking about how I'm going to satisfy me, and I can instead love and serve you. That's what we have freedom to do. So there's our definition. You're, you're freed from the life of performative religion. You're freed from the tyranny of the law. You're freed from the flesh, and so you're freed to enjoy that freedom, to love and to serve others. Let me call you then this morning to pursue that freedom. Paul says it like this back in verse 1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm, I think, implies that if we're going to pursue freedom, we've got to recognize we're prone to run back to slavery. In fact, our flesh prefers it. We like being told what to do. We don't have to think as much. It's what we see Israel doing all throughout the wandering in the wilderness. Moses, if we could just get back to Egypt where we could eat the food we want to eat and live the life that we were living there. You mean go back into slavery? That's what you want? We're prone to do it. So in order to truly enjoy freedom, we have to learn to stand firm in our freedom. And that may mean that we have to resist enslavement to the flesh. It may mean we have to resist our religious do-goodery that earns us some kind of points. Either way, we have to take an intentional, active stand in the gospel. We have to be reminded Jesus Christ lived our life, died our death, rose again to set us free so that we can stand in that freedom. And then lastly, if we're going to pursue freedom, I think we've got to watch out. That's what Paul says in what sounds like a really weird way to wrap up this whole idea in verse, in verse 15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I don't think Paul kind of lost his mind for a second. I think biting and devouring one another is what happens when a people resist the freedom that they've been given and instead choose religious slavery. How so? Because so long as we have some, some idea, some expectation that we feel everyone else must be living up to in order to be like us, then we will chew each other up and spit each other out. We will commit sins of the mouth. That's what biting and devouring is. We will run around talking about each other, using words to, uh, to label and dismiss one another. We will always, you know, siphon off a particular group and say, look at what they're doing. They're not being what they should be. Shame on them. Paul says that's what happens to people who are prone to religious slavery. They feel like they have the obligation then to hold everyone else to an account, to standards that they themselves aren't even living up to. So Paul says, watch out. If you bite and devour one another, you'll eventually consume one another. In other words, a culture can be created by a pervasive religiosity that looks like freedom but actually lives like slavery. And we've got to be careful because we're prone to it. So what's the cure? The cure is exactly what we've been saying throughout the entirety of this. The cure is to experience liberation ourselves. By trusting in Christ once again, to know that all the shoulds and the oughts that you failed to live up to, he knew full well in advance, he took to the cross, and when he declared it as finished... That applies to you by faith. And as you experience that, you're not only liberated to walk with the Lord in freedom and fullness, but you're also liberated to love and serve others. It doesn't mean you have to lower your standards down to where you accept any and all sin, but it does mean that you're not always trying to get everyone boosted up by shaming them into some sort of new life. Sanctification doesn't work that way. It's a miracle. It comes from the Holy Spirit, not by force or by will. 
And so then we can, we can become a people who live and experience freedom together. And this morning, let that be our prayer. Father, would we enjoy the weekend in such a way as to where it looks like the freedom that you've given us. And Lord, this morning, for the burdened soul that perhaps today has thought religion and even following Jesus is nothing more than subscribing to a new list of do's and don'ts. Jesus, would you, by your spirit even now, awaken them to the hope of the gospel? From the ways that, that their own conscience has uh, been tyrannical over their own souls about all the things they should have done or shouldn't done, for the ways that they look out on the world in judgment and scorn and ridicule, thinking that somehow that justifies them, Lord, liberate them. And with the glorious hope of a Savior who, who knew full well all the sins we would commit yet still chose to love us would bring us both humility and confidence at the same time. Would we stand in Him and Him alone, glorious, complete. We ask these things in His name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.